Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode in our FIBA podcast series. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Salvatore Sal Lascala, partner and head of Guidehouse's global investigations and compliance practice. I speak Italian, so that's why I, I pronounce the words like that. <laughs> I don't often get the chance. Sal and his team conduct investigations and compliance reviews on behalf of financial institution clients responding to regulatory or law enforcement matters in the area of BSA, AML, Patriot Act, and OFAC. Sal also assists clients with the selection, implementation, optimization, and validation of AML and OFAC compliance technology, being a champion of the development and implementation of Guidehouse's proprietary engagement technology, STAR, Suspicious Transaction Analysis and Reporting. The STAR platform has been deployed to file over 25,000 SARs and resolve investigations of AML, BSA, OFAC, fraud, and mortgage matters pursuant to looks backs and investigations. Sal also leads and manages enterprise-level projects addressing financial fraud, forensic accounting, monitorships, and independent private sector inspector general activities in class action lawsuits. That, Sal, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I also haven't heard my name said so nicely uh, since uh, since I've worked with a, an Italian bank and since my my grandmother said it a long, long time ago. So your your Italian accent is uh, is uh, right on point. Well, that's interesting, Sal, because I also worked for an Italian bank, which uh, <laughs> after mergers and acquisitions, the name has disappeared. But at the time, it was one of the top 30 banks in the world, the famous Banca Commerciale Italiana. Oh, it's it sounds beautiful. Let's just <laughs> I'm not familiar with them otherwise. <laughs> right. As I said, unfortunately, uh, through mergers and acquisitions, the the bank has has moved on. So, Sal, let me ask you, uh, you know, everybody's going through a lot of challenges with the pandemic. Uh, what's really been, say, the number one issue for your clients? You know, our clients, you know, the first issue, I think, for clients in the pandemic, and, and frankly, for us as well, was getting everyone outfitted to be totally remote. Um, and then maintaining, you know, maintaining the right um, uh, IT security and all the things that go with that. Um, but that was just really the beginning. I think what really happened was as we took that, as we uh, all got more used to being remote, um, you know, we were in the summer months and then, you know, then when school started again, I think there was a lot of, you know, you know, people who were working, including myself and my wife with, you know, kids who were remote learning. And so it was it was about being remote, um, which which is not so bad. We, in, in fact, I will tell you, I believe that somehow I have met I've, I've spent more face time with my clients and with my team. Um, than I have in a while because I get to see many of them every day and I don't do any phone calls anymore without without uh, some visual technology where I can actually see them and we can say hello and so I actually see them a lot more my staff included but I think the challenge was then finding a great environment at home the right environment at home to work in and then balancing those interests right or, or 
our, our ourselves and our clients and our uh, the the, uh, the people that work for them they have their own needs they have children they are sandwiched sometimes between children and parents and um, all those challenges you know started adding up after a while it feels like people have settled into a, a good cadence you know and have you know found working solutions to all those challenges, you know, that go with, it's not just working remotely, right? It's it's working remotely. And I, and I always remind my team to say this, it's not just working remotely, it's working remotely during a pandemic where we're all worried about each other and many, many other things that, that are going on. So yes, I think those are the, the biggest challenge was getting remote nailed down from like a technical perspective, you know, making sure the culture changed so you still had a lot of FaceTime um, with each other and we, we don't lose that, that personal touch that we need to get work done. And I think then situationally, you know, as life and the school year and calendar year progressed, you know, the challenges that came with that. I feel like my clients have settled in. I feel like we have settled in. Um, but um, of course, it's it's uh, uh, everyone's doing the best they can. Sometimes it's still uh, it's still not optimal, and of course, all of us still have uh, challenges. Again, because we're not just working remotely, we're working remotely during a pandemic, which is, you know, which means that each of us is unique and has many many other different things to worry about um, and to balance with work. But so far, so good. It seems like we're we're getting there. Well, you know, it's an interesting point because I think one of the challenges for financial institutions, given the pandemic, was that issue of contact with their clients. Uh, no longer were you hopping on a plane and going to check out what your high-risk customers are doing, uh, particularly in Latin America or, or the Caribbean, where you had complete lockdowns. And so that was a concern from their side. So it's interesting to hear you say how it's brought you more into contact with with your customers. So I think it's a big challenge um, that that banks are facing and, you know, it leads to the discussion that we're going to have here about technology, because that's what it becomes all about now is technology. And how can we make the best use of that technology to get around the challenges of the pandemic? So you know, when we talk about systems uh, and we're dealing, uh, you know, FIBA works a lot in the area of Latin America. So you have a complete lockdown. You have perhaps legacy systems and we can use the word legacy <laughs> in place of perhaps uh, antiquated systems. And if you're not able to go to the office and reply to your correspondent bank that's asking you a lot of questions about transactions from your customers, uh, you know, you, you have to somehow face that challenge. You somehow have to accelerate, um, you know, perhaps the innovation in the technologies that you're using. Um, have you been consulted, you know, basically on accelerating this innovation? So yes, in, in very many ways, and I think that was a great lead in because it really is the what has 
I think what we've seen close the gap between um, not being able to get out in the field and do those kind of visits and do the due diligence sometimes that you want to is that, you know, you have to really, um, you have to really visit with and analyze the data and corroborate information that you have electronically. And you have to use and rely on different technological systems to do so. So whereas, you know, let's say your customer risk ranking, you know, might have been, you know, uh, might've had some more, uh, maybe asked a few questions and, and then had some manual aspects to it, right? Well, this would be the time then to make sure that it, um, it reaches out and it pings several different databases, right? And updates you, you know, uh, uh, intermittently or every, you know, when an event actually occurs, right? Um, like continuous monitoring, because as you said, you're not able to do those visits yourselves. So we've actually, we certainly have had a lot of requests around um, optimizing or, you know, um, optimizing uh, anti-money tran transaction monitoring systems, um, sanctions related systems, um, customer risk ranking, um, and other financial crimes uh, systems as well. And when you talk about, you know, optimizing the systems, because obviously the idea of any type of uh, optimization is, is really to bring more efficiency uh, to that compliance function, to that monitoring function, to be able to analyze, uh, you know, better the transactions. And, and as I said, in a more efficient manner, which we're seeing uh, if we look at the, the National Defense Authorization Act, we have embedded in there uh, a whole set of uh, innovation type mandates that have been given to FinCEN, which should also encourage um, banks to want to have more cutting edge, shall we say, technology in, in their institutions. So just to kind of understand what that means for an institution. So what would be the role that these, you know, data models, the analytics uh, and, and the historical data that these systems would be able to bring into play? Uh, you know, what role do they play? So um, extremely important roles. In fact, you know, um, you know, due to the pandemic, I would say that optimizing a system has taken on a bit of a different or a newer definition. You know, like, uh, and I think that first of all, what it means is, you know, a lot of our clients had to get their, um, had to make sure that their systems, their their primary, let's say, AML transaction monitoring system, right, and the six or seven or could be. 10 different subsystems that are required for an investigator to visit or look into, right, to um, disposition and alert, all had to be made available uh, remotely, right? And some of them were, 
might not have been uh, 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 initially available outside of the walls of the bank. So they had not only to make sure the, um, the actual monitoring system um, was available remotely, but so were the support systems. And so optimization, you know, took on a bit of a new definition. First, you had to get it out there to everyone remotely. Um, then after that, of course, we, you know, you need, you need a certain amount of speed too. So there were those things. But uh, aside from all that, from, a, from more of a, um, from more of a substantive or, you know, how, how does this, you know, how does this really work uh, perspective? Um, frankly, a lot of people, uh, let's not say a lot, a fair amount of people were, were forced to work part-time. Uh, some people had to drop out of the workforce, right? Some people don't have um, remote access uh, to work that is reliable. They don't have a great internet connection, depending on where you are um, in, in Central and South America or anywhere in the world, right? There's certain jurisdictions that have more or, or less access. So a lot of financial institutions find themselves now trying to do more with less and you can close the gap in, in a couple different ways of course you want to optimize the system you already have um, sometimes you're also bringing on you know temporary workforces which we do as well um, to help augment your team until they can get back to um, their business or life as usual um, for optimization Listen, we don't want so many false positives, right? A system that you got buy on that generated too many false positives and caused you potentially to, um, let's say, boil the ocean instead of looking for specific AML typologies, not, th not the time for that, right? Um, not the time for that at all. A system has to be more efficient. You're working with uh, fewer people. They're under potentially a lot of pressure. And, you know, um, may there's probably a lot more um, online uh, online transactions and online banking and to the extent that you're monitoring that as well, your activity might have gone up. The only thing that is probably happening less is, you know, in branch activity. So, so with higher potential activity um, and more difficult circumstances, it sure is the right time to get into a system and try to optimize it. And um, would you like, should we talk about different ways of doing that or what? what well, what? you bring up, you bring up an important point, you know, when you're talking about, it's not just the one system we're looking at, you, you have several systems involved. So when you're trying to innovate and, and you're trying to integrate, um, you know, these legacy systems, um, how, how, how easy is that? Um, I imagine, uh, let's, Put it a simplified version they don't all speak the same language so when you're trying to integrate these various systems does there is there a point where you say well you know what uh it might be easier to to move on to a different generation of system and, and abandon those others which of course brings uh all your migration issues to the fore and then what what is the reaction of a financial institution when you say well you know what we need to move on. Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, um, it's almost like, you know, how much time, how much disruption, you know, do we want to put up with now to get these great gains later? And, um, you know, different institutions answer that question differently, right? Where, where, where I have described a typical client, 
team of investigators will have at least six or seven different um, sources of information that they have to refer to to clear just a, a typical AML alert, right? By following their own investigative protocols. Um, you know, some of those are easy to get to. Some of those dial up really quick. Some of those take a long time. Some of those uh, you want to do first thing when you get in or last thing in the day or 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 some of them you, you might want to run a batch at night because the system's got a lot of traffic on it and they're old they're older systems, right? And you, you want to you don't want to waste the analyst time. Um, sometimes they're not even easy to actually get to, but you have to leave the system you're on. You need multiple screens. You, you've got to go find them in difficult ways. It's not even like there is a direct route from your case management system, you know, to that system. And then once you get to that system, you want to pull back information into your investigative memo. Sometimes that's not so easy to do either. So definitely a lot of challenges and big discussions on how to uh, handle that. You know, I find that um, a good, a good, robust, um, new, newer, new, new generation, you know, case management system can sit on top of some pretty complex and diverse uh, uh, subsystems and pull them all together for you. You know, not, not seamless, not totally seamlessly, but can get them to the analyst's fingertips a lot quicker now than they used to even several years ago. And if you have a case management system that also has some, you know, um, you know, that is what you would call feature rich for investigators, right? Not, so I'm an investigator, uh, that's part of my background. You know, you want to be able to pull up, you know what information you're going to need. I need the I need I need the customer. I need the CIF. I need what's what's on the core for the customer. I need to know who they are. How long have they been with the bank? What is their transaction history? Whether or not this activity, you know, is also relates to, to uh, is um, you know serves some economic purpose and looks like previous activity. So if you can get a real investigator the stuff that they need quickly, they tend to form. You know, they tend to form a, 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 a um, you know, an opinion as to which way the alert or the disposition is going, and then they can kind of take it from there. But if you really slow them down and don't give them the vitals too quickly, you know, you've got a challenge. And like you said, there's some old systems that just aren't uh, configurable enough, right, to adapt to changes and to do thing, different things differently as the world has evolved. Some of them are, of course, you know, like conf configurable versus customizable, right? Some customization of the system um, could be really, really expensive and the vendors typically you know would have to take their best people and potentially most expensive people to customize a commercial system for you right so if you do get a new system you want it to be as configurable as possible so that as the world around you changes and as your investigations change and the typologies change you know that you can kind of reconfigure your case management system and your rules engine to handle those different, uh, those different things. We'll be right back with this episode of The Force. Please remember, GuideHouse, the company that helps commercial and public clients address their most important challenges with innovative solutions, will be present at this year's AML Compliance Conference, which will take place virtually on March 22nd to the 24th. So make sure to register today at www.aml.fiba.net. 
And we're back with Salvatore Lascala from Guidehouse, expert on global investigations and compliance, explaining how smaller financial institutions can take steps to optimize their compliance system and maintain their budgets. So once the decision is made, okay, the institution comes and says, all right, here's our issue. We, we really need to, to, to innovate at this point. Uh, how, how do you go about this optimization process? I mean, we're, we're using the term optimization. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. So perfect. So, so let's 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 start with a um, let's start with an, an anti money laundering transaction monitoring system, right? Um, we the first place you start is what should it be doing, right? So your your anti money laundering transaction monitoring system should be giving you coverage on AML risks or AML typologies that are um, that are present in your financial institution. So I think the first thing you want to do is a coverage assessment. So look at your bank. It's like doing a risk assessment, but you're doing it to see if your detection scenarios are covering the actual risk that you have. What are my uh, what are what are my channels, right, uh, of delivery? I have online, internet. I have, I have in-person banking, right, mobile banking. Um, what are my products and services? Um, who are my customers, and what type are they? Tell me about retail, about post-sale, about uh, correspondent banking. Find out all of that and then kind of what you do is you figure out once you figure out all the goods all the services that you're offering um you need to then identify for each of them you know what are my anti-money laundering risks right and once you find out those risks you figure out you tie to those risks what your typologies are for those risks and so typologies are and can also be um discussed in terms of red flags. So the FFIEC manual in the US, right, has uh, lots of, for almost every product, they list potential red flags. And FinCEN has a lot of guidance or red flags for different products or services too. And if you wanted to go more international, right, so does the Egmont Group and FATF and, and a lot of different other places. So you can find out, hey, for correspondent banking, the FFIEC lists these 20 kind of typologies that might uh, that you might find uh, interesting for AML. Maybe six or seven of them could be turned into transaction monitoring detection scenarios. You will find that the other ones are kind of a notes blasted out to investigators as to what to be careful for. So if you and I wanted to leverage all of that information from the FFIC, we would take some of them, probably turn them into detection scenarios or rules with conditions on them to identify um, AML typologies in the correspondent banking world. And then with the rest, we might include in our investigator procedures and give the, you know, give the investigator uh, warnings or notes as you're working through an investor correspondent banking alert, consider these six or seven things. And so I kind of, as you go through those businesses and those products, and you then begin the point where you're now saying, okay, um, I have 15 roles. And when I go and try to reconcile my, or let's say detection scenarios instead of rules, I try to reconcile my detection scenarios with the fraud typologies and the red flags that I have, I am seeing that I, I don't have enough coverage, right? I, I don't have, I have four rules that cover, you know, the same cash, you know, 
matter, but the other 10 rules don't come close to covering the 15 or 20 other non-cash related typologies that I have identified. Um, and so to optimize that system, to get that system working, you're gonna wanna first get to the point where your detection scenarios are covering um, your risks. So probably the worst thing anyone wants to hear, but you know you may, you may end up optimizing your system by having to add more rules in the beginning and at least get your coverage you know robust so that you have a good foundation to start off with. So in this process, and just so everybody has a clear understanding, uh, you're obviously involving more than just the IT and systems people in order to put this together you're talking to various areas of the bank that all basically have, shall we say, skin in the game uh, in terms of what the results are that are going to come out of this system. Absolutely. Talking to the business and the first, or the first line of defense, talking to the compliance team on the second line of defense. Uh, always want to be aware of, you know, if there were any um, uh, uh, enforcement actions or if there were any audit findings, right? So that you can be sensitive to those and make sure that, you know, uh, that your coverage assessment is inclusive of those kinds of uh, matters. And then, of, as you said, of course, you got to pull the IT people in because we want to make sure that our current uh, uh, transaction monitoring system can handle, if we need four or five more detection scenarios to get full coverage, we want to make sure that we can either modify existing detection scenario templates or that there's that the system offers templates that we haven't used yet and that we can implement a rule that'll get us coverage on that matter do you ever run into the issue where uh you know compliance audit uh, whoever is um you know putting in these requests for additional rules, additional scenarios, and you get pushback from the system side, kind of like the counter that we're usually seeing in a bank where the business line is pushing back against compliance. Oh, you know, always, we always do. Um, and sometimes, and, and, and a lot of times the IT teams are very, very busy and they've got a queue full of things that are really important coming down from the, you know, CEO or the, the chairman of the board and, and so, you know, they've, they've got their, their business as usual work to do, right? And then we come along with the AML team and the compliance officers and we're asking them to take on more work. So there's always a, there's always a challenge there. And, and so that's why you also have to be very careful. Like you have to really know that what you're asking for, you truly need, right? You have to be able to go to the highest levels and say, I really do need these detection scenarios. Hey, look, here's the um, FFIEC manual. Here's my documentation. This is what our internal auditors are told us. This is what we heard from uh, our regulator last year. This is an this is an imperative for us, right? We are not looking for a nice to have, right? We do need assistance on, you know, pulling this together. That said, uh, the more configurable of a system you have, the potentially the more control you have to handle some of these things on your own, right? With the appropriate uh, IT governance oversight. But yeah, absolutely. The, the IT teams are often, um, often very much uh, busy, but um, that's the reason why, um, you know, 
it's hard to get the nice to haves sometimes, right? You first have to focus on the the must haves and the needs, right? Before you can get to to the nice to haves. Right now, it's always uh, no matter which department you're dealing with, it's the question of competing priorities. Yes, uh, that that doesn't go away. And then, uh, as you said, sometimes uh, you know you can get caught in the middle of the IT systems people saying, "Well, I have you know my task list from the board," and then risk and compliance saying, "Yes, but you know we're here to protect the bank, etc. Our tasks and priorities are more important." So. Maybe I need to go have a conversation with the CEO. Do they then turn to you and say, "I need you to come with me"? Sometimes, yes, and that's why you want to have all your ducks in a row and all your documentation there. It's funny something something about AML and 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 uh, the the work that we do. I feel like um, it is not it is not the same as um, uh, like uh, I don't know how to explain this. Um, so for for credit. Right for the credit guys, they have empirical data, right, and they get to use that empirical data and they get to throw it around like a like a hammer, right? In AML, we don't have that empirical data. We don't ha- we don't get to say someone is filing more SARS than us, and we're we have fallen behind, or we should be doing this in this zip code, but yet it's different, right? It's we don't have any of that empirical data, and so you really have to document what you do have and what you do have is you know what products and services you're selling you know what um you know what kind of uh business you're in you know about your customers and their risk right and you know about the the new and emerging you know anti-money laundering uh, or money laundering typologies that you have to defend against and so you really have to have those nailed down and and luckily the FFIC manual and FinCEN and a few other places will throw some uh, great guidance at you and some red flags. And the examiners are using those items too, right? They use the they use the manual to come test us. So, so yeah, you have to definitely come prepared on those. And we do we do help our clients get there and articulate their needs. Um, shifting gear just a little bit because this is something. Uh, we hear about quite a bit in this in the innovation space is cost. And when you're looking at smaller institutions, community banks, et cetera, that face the same challenges in, in terms of compliance and, and monitoring, but sometimes they balk because of the price tag. Um, you know, how can these smaller financial institutions take the steps to optimize these systems? And, and maintain their budget. So I, I hope this doesn't sound like a cliche, but you've got to have a really good plan. Okay, the, 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 co- the costliest thing is the thing that you have to do twice over or three times over. And I will tell you that occasionally we get called in and we are, you know, maybe maybe a team with very good, um, very good intentions, tried to do something um, internally, and um, it took them a while, and they didn't get to where they wanted to go. And then they might have found um, maybe not the perfect consultant, right? You know, because maybe it wasn't a one-person job, right? And um, then they, they, again, they had another false start, and then maybe they found another group that, you know, maybe they realized that, that they needed not just a, a person, but a, a bigger team or a firm. <clears throat> Was that the right firm, right? Did that firm give you 
the right amount of attention, even if it was the right firm. And if it was the right firm, did you get the right team, David? You, you just, you don't know, right? So the most expensive thing is the thing that you have to do multiple times. I think you have to have a really good plan and the plan could avoid some of those things by really scoping out what you need to do, right? You know, setting up your, um, your request for proposals, right? Or starting out with a request for information, pulling in all these different firms who are dying to sell to people, right? And, and you find out you learn from them, you pull in from them and you learn from them and they ask questions and you'll learn from those questions as well. And really take that process, pull in IT with you so that they can help you identify, you know, the challenges, make sure you have the business with you, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a data point or some piece of information that you know someone's going to say you need that the business may or may not have available yet, right? So whatever changes or things you're recommending sometimes have, you know, dependencies that you have to, which means you have to have a consensus to get this done. So get your compliance, get your business team, get your IT folks all together, do some RFIs, learn. Put your RFPs together. If you have to, you could even ask for proof of concept. Always get your references and make sure that, you know, that the team or whoever you're bringing in to optimize this is going to do it right. Um, and, and even then it's a risk because sometimes, as I said, you'll be looking to optimize something. But if you optimize something that doesn't have a strong foundation, you could spend a lot of money optimizing what you already have. And a regulator is going to come in and say, that's lovely, but your underlying data is, is, uh, is, is, is lacking, right? You have no entity resolution. Your geography is not capturing certain countries. It's looking at the wrong codes, right? Or it doesn't enrich any of the codes, right? It, it, they'll come in and say, listen, you're, you're, you're trying to do something Right, but you built it up on a foundation that wasn't that wasn't strong enough. So you've got, you think you got somewhere again, and you haven't gotten anywhere. That's expensive, right? Sometimes what's not expensive is something that starts out a little a little more expensive than you thought it would be, but um, works out correctly. You know, is pervasive. It pushes through other areas, right, and um, and gets you what you really need, um, and gets it for you gets it to you the first time. Well, speaking of proof of concept, um, so you know we're we're a couple of years, few years into this optimization of systems and and coming up with new innovative technologies. Uh, for those that have actually taken uh, the steps and are, are already on this path, um, you know what what kind of success rate are we seeing in terms of new the optimized system over those legacy systems in terms of um you know filtering these alerts and 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 you know filing sars but not so much uh, as defensive as as they used to be but more on uh more accurate and and detailed information so um I can only tell you what we have seen when we've optimized the system. And even then I have to give you some of the conditions, right? But um, well, I will tell you this, in the last few years, I think that a lot of financial institutions have become aware that the, um, the thing that, will, that gets them home is good, clean data, 
And one of the things that is probably the most important is entity resolution. So if you have a detection scenario and it's looking for something nice and simple like velocity, and it's looking for Salvatore La Scala, right? The, the, the name that you said much, much more beautifully than I said. You know, there's Sal La Scala, there's Salvatore La Scala, there's Salvatore La Scala, Esquire, there's 10 different versions of my name and address, right? But when you look for velocity, your detection scenario is looking for multiple times when I'm either uh, uh, sending money out, I'm, I'm the originator, or I could be the beneficiary. And it could be, and it, and it's looking for me. You've got to have a, you've got to have a way to pull them together and resolve that entity and say yes. In that 30-day period, even though it, they're different versions, there were actually seven or or eight transactions by Salvatore Lasgala. Three of them were identical in the terms of how his name and address were presented, and the other ones were variations, but corroborated to be the same person. Now in that detection scenario is grouping things together, it's doing it correctly. And you don't have to have the investigator get out there and also spend another half hour finding what variations or seeing if the detection scenario was actually the right or worked. Or worse, you don't have two or three detection scenarios with the different variations of my name and no one realizes that they're out there. And now we have three different investigators clearing them or not, filing on one, maybe clearing two other ones, right? And an examiner comes in and you know does a check and somehow they find out that you know you've you've it's the same entity really and you've dispositioned it multiple ways so entity resolution critical right um the same thing with with just something simple like that everyone uses like high-risk geographies right we, we think it's easy it's not as easy as you think there's there's only so much geographical information that's actually required um, to be in some products like our international wire right in other places it's easier but in wires you know it doesn't always have to be there or it doesn't always have to be in the same place and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of enrichment of that data to find out which geography it came from or in the case of multiple geographies in one string of wire data which one does the system favor or how should it look at them should it target the highest risk the lowest risk and, and on, on which side so there's all these different ways of um kind of enriching or cleaning up the data that really gets you to a good place in terms of optimizing it and then there's the then there's the actual running of the rule i got my let's say my data is a lot cleaner now and i run i want to run that velocity rule we spoke about before and i want to run it against corporates right and i want to run it against let's say i have even gone so far as to segment corporates i have big corporates medium sized and small but my small could be from you know from a mom and pop shop up to a 50 or 100 million dollar company my mediums could be 100 to a million to a billion dollar company and my my largest could be a billion to to you know, who knows how high they go right Within any of those groups, as you can see, there's a large span of activity. The behavior of even the first group, a mom and pop shop versus something that'll take you up to 100 million or even just 10 million, on, on either side of that continuum, they behave differently. So what you want to do a lot of time, what we, what we have been doing is segmenting those segments a little further. So we use machine intelligence 
to create segments within those segments um, and understand better how they behave and how they transact. So for that first segment in velocity, there might be one rule and it might say we're looking for this amount of transactions in so many days that leaves the account in, in a certain amount of time and it has to exceed a certain uh, dollar, right? And maybe go to a high risk geography. We look at that first group and we look at it with first some unsupervised learning machine intelligence. It gives us the segments that it sees. We kind of, from a subject matter expert point of view and lens, identify the segments that make the most sense. And then we might break that into three or four different pieces and tweak that velocity rule so that it makes sense for the mom and pop shop. It makes sense for the, you know, 1 million to 5 million. It makes more sense for the 5 million to 20 million. Now, when I run those three velocity rules, I will actually get, um, I will get less of an output than I got before, right? In our experience, we've gotten up to um, 40% fewer alerts, right? Um, sometimes a little higher, sometimes a little lower, but around that number, we've got 40% fewer alerts with segmentation and the number of alerts that are actionable, meaning they warrant further review or potential SAR filing has gone up significantly, right? And so you find yourself um, doing, having to go through less alerts and the result of that being more filing. And because you did it at the detection scenario level, rather than after the alert has already been created, you can actually see activity that you hadn't seen before. If you were then to compare that activity, if you were to do that for each of the three corporate groups for velocity, and you were to put them all together, again, the same thing would happen. You'd probably have around 40% less. You'd have more actionable alerts than you did before. And you'd see activity that you hadn't seen before, which permits you to say what I think is the, the most important thing about, you know, optimizing a system, right? I have made my system not only more efficient, but more effective, right? It's, I've got fewer alerts, but I've identified things that I couldn't identify before. And that is going to resonate, I think, with a with a regulator, an examiner, an internal auditor, someone, any, any stakeholder. That's going to really resonate. Uh, but you can't make any promises. You could do that same analysis and realize you needed more coverage, and the amount of work might go up a little. So if anybody is going to promise you that they're going to just lower this and and do that, and and, and it's all going to work out fine, that that you really have to you really have to check out those promises if it's too good to be true it's probably not true right that's correct uh, there's been a lot of promises out there in terms <laughs> of elimination of false positives um, providing uh, false negatives um, so it, it has been challenging for financial institutions uh, to get into the space um, because they understand perfectly i mean first of all they need to understand the technology if they're going to explain it to a regulator. Second of all, they need to be sure that it's actually going to be better than the system that they're currently using or provide more actionable data, um, yes. so to speak. So, you know, those are some of the challenges before they make that, take that step and make that investment. They wanna know they're going to have some good achievable results. So given all that, you know, what do you see as the next 
set of opportunities and challenges with respect to system optimization. So, I mean, we did a we did a survey uh, a while ago on kind of machine learning and and fighting financial crimes, and we found that you know we found that the that the financial institutions that are getting involved in trying to make things work. Um, many of them have had a fair amount of success, right? 60, for us, I think it was about 64% of the firms that we, you know, uh, talked to um, believe that they have managed to reduce their risk. Another 47% said using uh, machine learning and other, you know, tools to optimize their system, you know, gave them almost a 48% uh, 48% of them said they were, that they had gains in efficiency, right? On our next round, we'll try to find out how much more efficient and effective everybody got. But this on this round, we, we just learned how many of them actually got the new technology and got the new systems to uh, kind of work. Um, another, another 44% decided that they were better able to detect financial crime. So, you know, we have seen the we have seen that, you know, FinCEN's offering of, hey, try to do it uh, faster, smarter, or leverage more technology and the firms that have taken them up on that. There have been there have been some good headlines in there. Um, and just one final question. and uh, Not a shameless plug, but but given that we're in this pandemic, we're in this virtual world and you know for example all of our events whether they be uh, anti-money laundering or or technology cyber are virtual you know everything has has gone remote but in spite of that isn't it still important for people to be involved and attend those events where they can learn more about these technologies learn more about system optimization so that in spite of the pandemic, in spite of being remote and working at home with all the challenges you mentioned at the beginning with children, et cetera, et cetera, um, that it's still important for them to do that so that they can move forward. So listen, I don't think it's self-serving at all. I think it's it's very, very helpful. And I, I absolutely agree, right? We don't have, we don't have the same, um, our clients don't have the same amount of connectivity or on, on able to trade anecdotes with their with their colleagues at other financial institutions as much as they used to right their forums have to be set up virtually so that we can continue our learning especially during this period right when we're both learning and the the the, the quality and character and magnitude of financial transactions um is increasing across the board right because we are all home doing things i will tell you i love the virtual seminars um it um for a lot of different reasons but one of them is um it takes out the um the challenge of getting there and getting home Right. And so, like, I, I love the seminar, but it's hard to get to, you know, it, it's hard to get to Puerto Rico sometimes. Right. For to, to, to be there and then, you know, to get to get back. Right. But I will join uh, one virtually. I will I'll be at a, at a, at a FIBA uh, conference virtually because I, I grab a cup of coffee. I take a, a, a break in my day and I'm there. I'm not I'm not taking planes, trains and automobiles. I do feel like that when this. Um, is over and God 
willing, it will be over and everybody will be okay. But I do think that there is a, will should still be a role for great virtual forums that people will want to join virtually for those reasons, right? It is very efficient and uh, and uh, very effective. And I think every day people get more, more comfortable asking questions from that virtual audience. And I just see it working better every day. So agreed, yes. Great. Well, Sal, Salvatore, La Scala, <laughs> no, La Scala being the, the impressive, important opera house uh, in Milan, Italy, which I have had the good fortune uh, to be at. Unfortunately, I was very young and I couldn't appreciate it at the time. Uh, looking back now, I, I, I understand. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for explaining and I think shining an important light on this issue of system optimization because banks, and, and I've been talking about this for several years, not just in the compliance area, but in all areas, you have to innovate. You know, you, you have to move forward because we've seen the onslaught of fintech and the great things that they are able to do in financial services. So if you as an institution uh, don't innovate, you will die. Uh, you know, it's just as simple as that. So great insights. Thank you very much again for your time and uh, we'll see you again soon. David, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was wonderful chatting with you and I hope I get a chance to do it again. You take care. Thanks, you too. Thank you. I want to thank our guest today, Salvatore Lascala, partner and head of Guidehouse's Global Investigations and Compliance Practice, for joining us on FIBA and Risk and Compliance Excellence and sharing with us why transactional data is a terrible thing to waste and how to optimize systems for effectiveness and efficiency. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and email us at marketingfiba at fiba.net with any comments or ideas for future podcasts. You can visit Guidehouse and chat with their experts at the Exhibit Hall on the AML Compliance Conference platform. And if you have not registered yet, go to www.aml.fiba.net.